Good morning. Hey, welcome to West Hills. So good to have you all with us. I'm Will Duvall, lead pastor here. If you're newer and we haven't had a chance to meet yet, I would love to do that after the service today. And um, we'd love to get your contact info and give you a little thank you gift for being with us and worshiping with us this morning. Uh, if you're not new, uh, speaking of giving, um, you didn't know we were going to be taking up a special offering for a new computer uh, this morning. <clears throat> now we are, so make sure to make those checks out to uh, West Hills AV team. Uh, drop them on the offering box on your way out today. Uh, we are finishing up a sermon series this morning, and next week we're diving into a new one. It's crazy uh, to think that Advent is next week. Christmas is right around the corner, uh, but it is, and i um, excited to announce this, this new series. Kind of had the idea for this um, a couple years ago, and now we're pulling the trigger on it. Uh, it's going to be called Unheralded Heralds. And uh, so the idea is, um, you know, we all know the shepherds and the wise men, Mary Joseph and, and the, uh, the popular Christmas story. But I wanted to do a kind of a deeper dive on um, the, the lesser known, the minor characters of Christmas, folks like Simeon and, and Anna and uh, those that, that God specifically wrote into his story and why. Um, the unheralded heralds, well, for one reason, they were written in, uh, all of them, to be heralds, to be an announcers of the good news of Christ's coming. And so uh, we're going to read, read four different minor character stories and find ourselves within their stories and how are we called to also be just simple, unheralded, un, un, you know, famous, uh, popular um, announcers of, of Christ's good news. But this morning is our 11th and final Sunday, as I said, in our Essentials sermon series, and we have uh, now considered together the Bible, God, humanity, God's plan, Jesus, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the church, the ordinances, mission, and now we come to the end. End of the series, end of human history, it's the end of the world as we know it. And before we dive in, um, I want to start by saying just a word about uh, what has come to be referred to in, in the church as theological triage or prioritization of issues. We sometimes talk about first, second, third tier issues in the church. I've used that language with you before. A first tier issue divides a Christian from a non-Christian, our 11 essentials, hence the name. If you don't believe in God, don't believe the Bible is his word, that man is sinful, but that God had a plan to redeem humanity through Jesus and his gospel to indwell us through his Holy Spirit as a church for the purpose of mission. If you don't believe these things, then you're not a Christian. It's a first-tier issue, and you may have noticed I left out in my recounting of our essentials there, one of our essentials here at West Hills, which brings us to second-tier issues. Second-tier issues differentiate churches and denominations from one another. So baptism, I told you two weeks ago, I believe, is a second-tier issue. We have Presbyterian, Anglican, Lutheran, brothers, sisters who understand baptism differently than we do here at West Hills as Baptists. We love them. We look forward to worshiping together in heaven with them one day. Not a salvation issue, but because we can't both baptize and not baptize babies, we 
tend to congregate ourselves accordingly. Calvinism versus Arminianism, continuationism versus cessationism, complementarianism versus egalitarianism. These are all second-tier issues. Third-tier issues are disagreements amongst individual Christians within a particular church. These are issues we do not divide over and start new churches over. And eschatology, your view of the end times, our subject for this morning, fits very squarely within that category. We're going to see at least three different options this morning open to faithful students of God's Word for how we make sense of Christ's return in the last days. By the way, not only is one's interpretation of how it's all going to end a third-tier issue, but so too is your reading of how it all began. Genesis 1 and 2, are they six literal days or six spans of time? Third-tier issue. Some pastors would add a fourth tier. That is issues we shouldn't even disagree over in the first place and care about, color of the carpet, whether or not we use the drum kit. These are fourth-tier issues. Now, that said, our church's statement of faith here at West Hills uh, is debatably, our specific statement is debatably a first-tier issue. It is an essential, as we've, as we've identified it, and that's because our stance is purposely generic enough to make room for all three of these historic, orthodox, eschatological positions that we're going to be examining this morning, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism. I'm going to define all those in just a moment. But all three of those camps would affirm West Hill's doctrinal stance on this issue, and that is purposeful. Our statement of faith is meant to unify us as a church. I know for a fact that we have premillennialists, amillennialists, and postmillennialists worshiping with us right here in this room right now, members of this church. And more than anything, we've probably got a lot of y'all like myself, who would identify more as a pan-millennialist, don't have a strong opinion either way, we just trust God that it'll all pan out in the end. <laughs> but my goal over the next 37 minutes or so is very simple. Uh, Jesus, you'll remember, said that the greatest commandment was what? Love your Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, and your strength, right? And so that's what I want to try and cultivate and foster in in you and in his church this morning the first half of this service maybe first two-thirds really uh, i want to try and summarize these three eschatological views for you and i'm going to invite you to love god more with your mind this morning uh, if, if you came thinking that you could just be passive and sort of you know be half awake during service this morning um, think again i need you to put on your thinking caps because I want to invite you to love God with your mind as you consider all these little clues that he has left us in his word about the end and then appreciate all the, the clever ways, really, that the church has come up with over the last 2,000 years for piecing all of these clues, all the evidence together from the Bible. And then in the, the last third or so of the sermon, I'm going to end with <clears throat> encouraging you to love God with all your heart as well as we consider together the truths that all Christians agree on, that the deep, uh, most important, most essential, foundational, transformational, heartfelt truths about the climax of history and God's plan for the end times. Then, as we always do here at West Hills, we're going to respond 
to the preaching of God's word and prayer and song and communion to engage our souls in worship of God as well. Soul response. And finally, as always, we send you out once again to make disciples and love God with all your strength as you're motivated and empowered to serve the Lord, bear witness to this gospel that we're going to examine again together this morning. First, I invite you to stand with me as you're able one one more time here. As we go to God's word together, we're going to be in Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, and then we'll flip over and read the very end of the Bible, Revelation 22, verses 20 and 21. And uh, after I have read uh, this passage for us this morning, I would invite you to respond as you feel led to by verbally affirming your belief in these truths as reflected in our church statement of faith. So I'll invite you to recite that with me after. Hear the word of the Lord, Revelation chapters 21 and 22. Apostle John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Church, what is your response? We believe that Jesus Christ will one day personally and bodily return to earth with his angels, exercising his role as final judge and consummating his kingdom. There will be a bodily resurrection of the just believers to eternal blessedness in God's presence and of the unjust unbelievers to judgment and eternal punishment. God will establish a new heaven and a new earth where God will dwell with his people and will wipe every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we 
praise you this morning for these glorious truths, these, these promises, this hope that we have in Christ this morning of a new heaven, a new earth, uh, an end to death and suffering and pain, an eternal life to come in a recreated Eden, paradise with you forevermore, that that is our future and our hope and our eager anticipation as your people this morning. We praise you for the hope of the good news of how it all ends, that Jesus wins, that regardless of our eschatological view, the, the, the Cliff's Notes is, is simply that Jesus wins. We praise you for that good news this morning. We find such hope and peace and comfort in it. And so, Father, now as we turn our minds on and engage our, our minds in loving you through our intellect, and we, we consider all these, these passages that you've left us, these breadcrumbs to, to lead us to these glorious truths of, of how it's all going to end, even when we disagree and we fit it together differently, God, would you, would you use all of that to sanctify us? Would you, would you help us to be sharpened by one another and by your word this morning and to increase our, our eager anticipation, increase our worship of you, increase our, our love for you and our longing for your glorious return? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> Maybe seated. <clears throat> All right, let's begin with what we don't know. What we don't know for sure about Jesus' second coming, the things that we debate over and disagree about in the church, in this church, West Hills, and the church globally, we do not know when or how Jesus will return. We don't know when or how. Now, in one sense, the point about not knowing when he will return is biblically very obvious. Jesus said in Luke twelve forty, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. Matthew twenty four forty two. therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. Tons of other passages where this is very clear in the New Testament. So we can all laugh together uh, at folks like Harold Camping, who would even attempt to predict the year, the exact day on which Christ would return, October 21st, 2011. That was the day. Jesus missed the memo, and wouldn't you love to have been with Harold Camping on October 22nd? Right. I mean, wh whoops. But, but when I say that we don't know when Jesus will return, I mean even more broadly that we don't know when he will return in relation to the millennium. You will notice that all three of my previously mentioned eschatological camps, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, they all derive their names specifically in relation to the millennium, this thousand-year reign of Christ in the last days predicted by the book of Revelation chapter 20. We sometimes jokingly say that the millennium is the, the thousand years of peace that Christians love to fight about. But let's read the passage together from Revelation 20. This is the vision given to the Apostle John, again, by God. It says, Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, 
holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while, Verse 6, blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years, the saints. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Uh, But fire came down from heaven consume them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet already were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Now, as each of their names indicate, premillennialists expect Christ to return before that millennium. Postmillennialists expect him to return after the millennium, and amillennialists Expect no future earthly millennium because they think Christ is already presently reigning from heaven. So let's zoom in on each of these. I think it might be helpful to do so. I'm glad we got the PowerPoint back working again because I I spent a lot of time giving you some really good uh, clip art this morning. I'm going to give you a timeline a timeline uh, 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 for outlining how each of these three views makes sense of six key events frequently associated with the end times. So all six of these are undisputedly biblical events. The question is simply when and how they will take place in relation to one another. So first event, Christ's second coming, Revelation 1-7, behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. You can see also Matthew 16, Acts 1, Hebrews 9, Titus 2, Revelation 22, many others. Christ's second coming, undisputed. Secondly, the rapture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. We who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Also Matthew 24, 1 Corinthians 15. Third event, the tribulation. Matthew 24, 21, there will be a great tribulation, such as has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be. Fourth event is the Battle of Armageddon. From Revelation 16 and 19, the kings of the whole world assembled for battle on the great day of the God Almighty at the place called Armageddon. Fifthly is the millennium we just read about from Revelation chapter 20. And finally is the restoration of the new heavens and the new earth that we also already read from Revelation chapter 21. So those are the six kind of biggest puzzle pieces that all three of these views are trying to figure out how it all pieces together chronologically. So premillennialism, we'll start with, kind of tricky because there's actually two subcamps of premillennialism. First of all, there's the historic premillennialists who believe that the signs of the end times that Jesus mentions in Matthew 24, wars and rumors of wars, false messiahs, famines, earthquakes, all of that will come first and culminate in the great tribulation, the skull and crossbones represented, you see there, which itself will culminate after seven years in the battle of Armageddon that you see with the explosion. And then Christ will return to 
win the battle of Armageddon to rapture uh, the believers that are still on earth at that point, to raise the dead saints, to bind Satan, to begin his millennial reign on the earth with his people. And after a thousand years, Satan will be released so he can be defeated for good, cast into the lake of fire along with all those who have rejected Christ. And then God will remake the new heavens and the earth where we'll live and reign with him forever. That is historic premillennialism. It's called that because it was the view of the early church. The second type of premillennialism is dispensationalism. This was developed in the mid-19th century by John Nelson Darby, but popularized in the 1990s by the Left Behind books and films. Pastor Thad joked that in lieu of preaching this morning, I should just press play and just screen the, the Left Behind movies for you. I'm not going to do that. I do highly recommend them, not because I'm a dispensationalist, but they're just that good. But according to dispensational premillennialism, Jesus is coming back actually three times. All right, so this gets tricky. Stick with me. Once, he's coming back to rapture the church and actually save us from the tribulation period, that seven-year period when it's going to be so terrible on earth, and, and the subsequent battle of Armageddon, Revelation 16. He's going to save us from that, but then he's coming back a second time in Revelation 19 to win that battle and reign on earth for a thousand years, and then finally he's coming back a third time in Revelation 20 to win the final battle over Satan and cast him in the lake of fire and make all things new. So for those who care, keeping score, John Piper, historic premillennialist, John MacArthur, uh, dispensationalist. The greatest strength of premillennialism in both its forms is its commitment to a literal, plain sense reading of the Bible, specifically the book of Revelation. Now, amillennialists and postmillennialists will point out that as a genre, apocalyptic literature like the book of Revelation is typically highly symbolic in nature and not intended to be taken literally, but when in doubt, it is good for the church to err on the side of faithfulness to the plain sense reading of the text. And another strength of premillennialism is its concern for uh, the Old Testament prophecies and promises concerning the nation of Israel. Premillennials would argue that many of God's promises in the Old Testament to his people Israel specifically, Isaiah chapter 2, chapter 9, chapter 11, Zechariah chapter 14, not to mention some of God's New Testament promises to Israel, like Romans eleven twenty six, that all Israel will be saved, that those have not yet been fulfilled. And so their understanding of the future tribulation and millennium specifically allows for the repentance and the salvation of the nation of Israel. The biggest weaknesses of premillennialism are that once you get outside the book of Revelation into the rest of the New Testament, <clears throat> there are lots of coming events that have been foretold in the New Testament that seem to be directly associated with Christ's coming that premillennialists don't account for until after his thousand-year reign. Things like the defeat of death, 1 Corinthians 15. The renovation of the new heavens and the new earth, 2 Peter 3. The resurrection of our, our spiritual bodies, Romans chapter 8. The judgment of unbelievers, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. 
all these various prophecies that are supposed to accompany Christ's return become harder to explain for premillennialists who say that none of that is going to happen until at least a thousand years after his return in the millennium. So, it's premillennialism. Second, you got postmillennialism. Postmillennialism, as the name suggests, uh, they believe Christ will return after a thousand year period, which postmillennialists envision as a kind of Christian golden age in which the church has successfully accomplished Jesus' great commission to go and make disciples of all nations. And so postmillennialists optimistically anticipate a coming day when the gospel will not only penetrate, but actually permeate all cultures on the earth, inaugurating the thousand-year uh, golden age of the church of peace and Christ's reign on the earth through the hearts of his people. Moreover, postmillennialists read the vast majority of the book of Revelation and other New Testament prophecies uh, as already having been symbolically fulfilled in past events in history and the church. So, for instance, the tribulation, skull and crossbones. All its cataclysmic events, a third of the waters turning to blood, uh, stars falling from heaven, all the signs of the times that Jesus referred to in the Olivet Discourse, Matthew chapter 24. Postmillennialists would view most of that, if not all of it, as having already been fulfilled and completed in the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem by the Romans in the year AD 70. And so they're going to interpret the Emperor Nero as the beast in Revelation chapter 13, for instance. And they're going to uh, figuratively you know, symbolize all of, almost all of the book of Revelation for sure. And so the good news is all the worst stuff is behind us already. Right? Now we're just looking forward to that thousand-year golden age, which will culminate in Christ's return to defeat death and Satan once and for all at the Battle of Armageddon. It's not even going to be that bad. It's a real short battle, uh, chapter, chapter 19, if you read it. It's like Satan gets, left out, uh, gets locked out of uh, prison just so Jesus can embarrass him real quick and, and throw him in the, the lake of fire forever. So, so we've got nothing, you know, good stuff ahead of us to look forward to for post-millennialists. Jonathan Edwards, R.C. Sproul, famous post-millennialist. The strength of post-millennialism is that it honors the power of the gospel and the promises of the Old Testament for the triumph of God's people over all the nations. So you've got passages like Hosea chapter 2, Isaiah 2, Isaiah 45, uh, Psalm 72, Psalm chapter 2, where God promises his son that I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. That Jesus is going to inherit all the nations of the earth. Postmillennials will say, well, he, he hasn't yet. There's a lot of nations that haven't even heard of Jesus yet. And so if he's going to truly reign over them as their king, there's got to be this future golden age. Postmillennialists will also point out that the context of Jesus' prediction of signs and tribulations in Matthew chapter 24 on the Mount of Olives was his having been asked by his disciples specifically about the temple. They said, tell us about the temple. Jesus said, well, let me tell you about the temple. And, and he's specifically predicting its destruction, which they will also point out, Jesus claims, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. So Jesus seemed to expect an immediate fulfillment of that prophecy. AD 70, one generation after 
Christ's death. The weakness of the post-millennial position is that Jesus also said in Matthew 24 that this great tribulation was going to be so bad that there has not been anything like it from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. Now, the destruction of the temple in AD 70 was bad, but it wasn't that bad. It wasn't like the worst thing that's ever happened in the earth. People who aren't post-millennialists would argue that point, right? I mean, like, it's not even like eat your own babies bad, which is how bad God's people had it 650 years prior to that in the Babylonian captivity. We don't have records of people eating their own babies at the destruction of the temple. So that's a problem. Postmillennialism also requires that the entire book of Revelation be written, be completed before the year AD 70, which is historically, textually problematic. And then there's the issue of postmillennialism's optimism. So if I asked you, you know, take a look around the world, you know, the culture, people's reception of the gospel, what seems more, prob- uh, more um, probable, likely, that Christianity is going to so thoroughly take over the globe that the world will experience a thousand years of peace because everyone, basically everyone's going to be a Christian, or that, yes, the gospel will go to every corner of the earth as Jesus promised in Matthew 24, 14, but only through suffering and persecution. Which of those sounds more plausible? So, critics would say it's uh, unfairly optimistic rendering of, of the future of things. But that's post-millennialism. Finally, you've got amillennialism. The name is misleading because amillennialists, they don't not believe in a millennium. They just don't believe It's a future, earthly, literal thousand years. Rather, the millennium was inaugurated at Jesus' death and resurrection, and now Christ presently reigns in and from heaven with his saints who have died and gone to be with him there in the intermediate state. And so here is an amillennialist timeline. Millennium is already underway. It's been underway for 2,000 years now. Those 1,000 years of the book of Revelation 20, uh, they were symbolic of a really long time, at least 2,000 years and counting. But through the triumph of Christ's death and resurrection, he effectively bound Satan. Satan is bound, but only in a very specific sense. As Revelation 20 itself indicates, It was so that Satan might not deceive the nations any longer. And so amillennialists would say that Satan still prowls around like a roaring lion, 1 Peter 5, but he's a lion on a leash. Christ holds the leash. Satan can no longer keep the gospel from going forward to all nations. That is Christ's anticipation, expectation. All authority has been given to me. I've bound, bound the enemy. Go, therefore, and make disciples. But because people will still reject the gospel, amillennialists would say that persecution and tribulation uh, are still inevitable. And not only that, they're going to increase, that the the nations will actually become increasingly hostile to the gospel, uh, culminating in this period of the tribulation that we have 
recounted in Scripture, and that culminating in the Battle of Armageddon, at which time then Christ will return, the church will be raptured halfway up to meet him in the clouds, and then we'll welcome him down here to earth so that he can throw Satan in hell and make all things new, and we'll reign here with him forever as he makes all things new. So St. Augustine, um, Sam Storms, be famous amillennialist, the great strength of amillennialism is the centrality it places on Christ's finished work at his first coming, Christ's death and resurrection. Jesus did what he said he actually came to do. Matthew 12, I came to bind the strong man, to bind Satan. Colossians 2.15, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Hebrews 2.15, through his death, Christ destroyed the one who has the power of death. That is the devil. Christ destroyed Satan. I mean, if Satan is still the, the ruler of this age in any sense, he's, he's a ruler with a mortal wound and he's bound. He has no power to keep the gospel from going forward. 1 John 3.8, the reason that the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. He's destroyed. And so amillennialists aren't sitting around waiting for Christ's kingdom to come and his reign to begin, it's already here. We're in it. So let's get after it. Let's do it. Let's spread the kingdom, making disciples of all nations. A premillennialist might ask, well, what about all those promises in the Old Testament that God made to the nation of Israel? Don't you need you know, a future millennial reign so that Israel can be converted and then uh, enjoy God's favor and blessing again? To which the amillennialist would reply, 2 Corinthians 1.20, all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. So any promise made to, to Israel or to anyone <laughs> in the Old Testament, New Testament, all of it, all of God's promises, find their yes in Christ. They're fulfilled. The weakness of amillennialism is deciphering which passages in Revelation should be taken literally which is versus which are taken figuratively. So there's maybe some selective picking and choosing. The 70 weeks prophesied in Daniel 7 uh, become a little tricky for amillennialists to deal with. And then you've got a passage like Acts chapter 1, when Jesus' disciples asked him before he ascended back into heaven, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And Jesus didn't reply, you dummies, I just did it. I just died and resurrected to restore the kingdom. You're in it. You're li no, he said, it's not for you to know the times of the season that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And so those are the issues that amillennialists have to answer for. Now, with all of that said, why does any of this matter? Because right, some of y'all are asleep. Wake up. That's actually one of the purposes, wake up. Uh, why does it matter? If we can't know for sure which position is right, then why even bother very quickly? This is probably most important of all in this section. Five reasons that we ought to care about eschatology, about how it's all going to end. Number one, it ought to make us more studious. We ought to diligently devote ourselves to the study of the scriptures, to prayerfully 
try and discern the truth about these matters. The more complex a doctrine is, the more persistent the church ought to be in studying it, seeking and examining. And I have to confess and repent that up until probably this last week or so, uh, just the opposite was true for me personally. I have tended to avoid the subject of eschatology because I knew that it was complex. It was hairy. It's not clear. But may it not be so in the church. It is all God's Word. Every, every passage I just read for you is all God's Word. And we ought to seek to understand his word. May God bless us in our, our passionate pursuit of understanding his word. Secondly, studying eschatology ought to make us more humble. If it does nothing else, it ought to make you more humble. At the end of the day, we really don't know with biblical certainty which of these three positions is right. If any, they could all be wrong and we'll all be real surprised in the end times. If studying the end times makes you more prideful that you've got it figured out, then you're doing it wrong. We all need a healthy dose of humility, which is a wonderful thing. And that's part of the reason God you know, put all these little breadcrumbs and we're like, leading all, how do I make sense of this? Right? It's to make us humble because God exalts the humble, but he humbles the proud. Number three, not only do we begin to realize just how much we don't know, but studying these end time prophecies, they ought to simultaneously lead us to worship as we realize how much God does know. We don't know it. God does. Only God knows. Only God is sovereign and omniscient. Only God can accomplish. He's omnipotent to accomplish his good plans for his church at the end of time. Praise God for it. Number four. Studying these things ought to make us more fruitful. Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. That's the day of the Lord, the coming day of the Lord when he returns. So considering the end times, according to the author of Hebrews, ought to give us the sense of urgency that, you know what, we really don't know how much longer we have here. We really don't know when our, our owner will return and demand a profit on the investment of the gospel that he's made in his people. That's Matthew 25, right? Jesus gave five talents to some, two to some, one to some, five minus, whatever your translation, and he expects a return on investment. Jesus blessed you with the gospel so that you could be a blessing to others. To be fruitful and multiply. To go forward and make disciples. And if you fail to do it, then Jesus is very clear about how he's going to respond to you when he comes back. Cast that worthless servant into the outer darkness. Not to cause us to fear and tremble and to get busy about the Father's business that he's left us with. Finally, number five, studying the end times ought to make us more expectant. 
more hopeful, more anticipatory, more watchful, more alert, more awake. If you fell asleep while we were talking about the different views, you, you missed the point. It ought to make us more awake. We ought to be praying along with the Apostle John at the end of Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. We believe these things. We actually believe there's going to come a day when he comes back. And it could be just about any time. And so Jesus says, stay awake. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. That, by the way, that's how the, the book of Revelation, that's how the Bible ends. Like, you would maybe expect it to end with this beautiful picture of everybody in the new heavens and the new earth partying with Jesus at the, at the banquet table and then fade to the credits. It doesn't end that way. It ends with a prayer. A prayer of expectation and longing. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. But that means we've got to get ready. If we're going to pray that and mean it, come quickly, then we need to be ready when he comes and not be found with just that one mina when he meant for us to invest in. Now, that, those all ought to be the fruit of studying eschatology for the church. Now, for those of you who are more conflict-averse and who don't like debates in the church. Let me leave you with some good news this morning that what we do know about the end times far outweighs, outstrips what we don't know. And what we do know is this. We know that, where, why, and for whom Jesus will return. We know that, where, why, and for whom he's going to return. For starters, and most importantly, we know that Christ will return. The Bible is crystal clear. Matthew 24, 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. Acts 1, 11, after his ascension into heaven, the angels tell the disciples, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking up into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come again in the same way as you saw him go into heaven except opposite. He's coming down this time. 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 3, chapter 5, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 1. They all anticipate the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. 2 Timothy 4, 1. Christ Jesus is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. 1 Peter 1, 13. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then again, the Bible ends. Revelation chapter 22 by emphasizing this truth not once, not twice, but three times for emphasis. Verse 7, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 12, behold, I'm coming soon. Verse 20, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And so, whatever your eschatological stance this morning, whichever of those three camps you're in, or if you're like me, and, and you can appreciate the strengths of each of them, but also be wary of the weaknesses of each of them, you can sleep easy tonight in full assurance that no matter when he comes or how he comes and all the debate and whatever, we know that our Lord will come. He will return for his church and we will be with him forever. Amen. That's good news. And that leads us to a second key point that all Orthodox Christians agree on, where Jesus is returning. 
specifically here, not Chesterfield, but to the earth. He's coming, he's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to the earth. Some of us might be tempted to read passages like 2 Peter chapter 3, New heavens and the, new, uh, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire. The heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved in the earth, and the works that are done in it will be exposed. We can read the violent imagery of the book of Revelation with stars crashing to the earth and mountains being cast into the sea. And then we can kind of put that together with an under-informed view of the rapture, and we can be tempted to believe that Jesus is returning is all about rescuing us up out of this world and taking us up to heaven to be with him forever when the Bible makes it absolutely clear that God's aim is actually to redeem our world so that he can come down here and be with us. Revelation 21, that passage we opened with together, I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Behold, the dwelling place of God will be with man. He's coming here to be with us. I think that's really cool because it means we may actually have all, like all the things that we love in this world other than marriage and sex, which we, we covered last week, don't happen in the new heavens and the new earth, but, but all the other like awesome stuff that we love about this world, it might still exist for all of eternity and, and even better, it'll be redeemed. And, and you'll have a new body, a resurrected body to enjoy it. Like I played basketball with, I was the oldest guy yesterday by 15 years on our, our basketball league. Like I'll be able to, you know, do 360 dunks on all these young guys in, in the new heavens and the new earth. And my back won't hurt the next day. It's going to be beautiful. I think it's cool that God is renovating this earth and he's coming here. And so, like when Jim Reeves sang, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through, as if to suggest that the earth is just like a waiting room for heaven, we might push back and, and say even more accurately, more eschatologically, we might sing instead, heaven is not my home, we're just passing through. Right? Because that refers to the intermediate state. When you die, you're going to leave your physical body here uh, in the ground on this earth, and your soul's going to go be with the Lord in heaven until the last days. And then Jesus will come back here to renew all creation, including your physical body. He will resurrect it as a spiritual body that we will then reincarnate. I bet you didn't know Christians believed in reincarnation, did you? We do. You're going to reincarnate that body of yours, except it'll be different. It'll be renovated. New, new spiritual body, raised imperishable. And then you will reign on earth with Christ forever. And so that leads us to a third end times truth that we all agree on. Why Jesus is coming. He's coming back for three reasons. Number one, to make all things new. So we just... We just worshiped him for. Revelation 21.5, behold, I come to make all things new. Secondly, Jesus is coming to execute judgment against all who oppose him and for all those who belong to him. Revelation 19 and 20, Christ will execute judgment against all those who oppose him 
and for all those who belong to him. And number three, he's coming to reign gloriously over all things forevermore. Revelation 5, 12, and 13, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing forever and ever. Amen. He's going to reign forever. And by the way, we not only know why Jesus is returning, but we also know why he left us with these prophecies in the meantime to, to for, that, that, that all foretell his return. It's not so that we could argue and debate and disagree, speculate, even though that's fun for some of us who, who like to debate. It's so that we could be prepared by remaining obedient, watchful, steadfast, and missional until the end. Obedient, watchful, steadfast, and missional. Jesus left us with these words for our obedience. That's Revelation 1 verse 3, where John uh, gets the word from God about why God's giving him the revelation in the first place. He says, blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. We're supposed to keep the book of Revelation. Obey it. It seems like all this abstract prophecy, I don't, I don't even know how to keep the book of Revelation. How do you keep it? You keep it by remaining obedient to all that Christ has taught us and being watchful. Secondly, Revelation 16, 15. Jesus said, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake. Remaining steadfast, number three, Revelation 14, 12. Here's a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Apostle Paul said, I don't want to be like a runner who gives up before the finish line. I want to run the race all the way through the end, right? Steadfast. And finally, so that we might be missional to the end. Matthew 24, 14, Jesus said, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout all the world as a testimony to all nations, to all ethne, and then the end will come. So, we don't know when Jesus will come back, but we know it won't be tomorrow or later today. Because currently there are still 7,402 unreached people groups in the world. That means 7,402 times whatever the average number of people in those people groups have no access to the gospel, little, little no access to the gospel. The gospel has not actually gone to every corner of the world, as Jesus said. It must before he would come again. Second Peter 3 also. Why is God so patient? I mean, the new heavens and new earth sounds awesome. 360 dunks on the young guys sounds awesome. Why, why wouldn't he just come back and make all things new? He's being patient so that more people can be included in that new heaven and new earth by virtue of their saving faith in Jesus. 7,402 times however many average people in the people groups, billions of people haven't even had a chance to have eternal life, paradise opened up to them yet. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through him. They don't know him. He's being patient because he's waiting on us. And I think it'd be pretty cool if West Hills played some small part 
in reaching just one of them. Like if, if because this church exists, we, 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 could, we could know, not to pat ourselves on the back, right, but, to, but to thank God for what he's doing through us as a church, that maybe because of West Hills, one day we can say there will be 7,401 unreached people groups because we were a part of reaching just one like pooling our collective attention and prayer and, and resources, finances, and, and sending missionaries and going ourselves and raising up d- disciples who will go make disciples to reach, to reach another people group. And, and we would be able to say that we're that much closer to Jesus being able to return to earth like he, he, he wants to and he's going to that we help bring salvation to an entirely new ethne, people group. How cool would that be if God used a church like West Hills to be a part of that? That's my philosophy of mission. Because lastly, we know for whom Jesus is returning. He's returning for his bride. He's returning for the church. Matthew 24, 31. He will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect. That's who's being gathered. Hebrews 9.28, Christ will appear a second time to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. There's going to be some people that are surprised, unpleasantly surprised by Christ's return. But he's coming back to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16 and 17, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the sound of the trumpet and the dead in Christ will rise first. Believers who died in Christ and then we who are alive, believers left on the earth, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air and so we will always be with the Lord. That's the day we look forward to if you're a believer. But make no mistake, friends, On that day, Jesus will also deal with those who have rejected him. Revelation 20 makes this clear. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it, and I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the book of life was open, and the dead were judged by what was written in the book according to what they had done. And death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That means that one way or another, Jesus is coming back for you. Either to eternally bless and reward you, or to eternally judge and condemn you. Have you repented of your sin and trusted in Jesus for your salvation this morning? If you haven't, if your name is not written in the Lamb's book of life yet this morning, I plead with you, do not wait a moment longer. He might just be waiting to come back for you.